In one of the seminar, seminars I attended by Dr. Howard Hendricks, he asked a question, are you a night owl or a morning dove? And then he would ask for a show of hands. How many of you are a morning dove? How many of you here are a morning person? How many of you are a night owl? That's definitely me. Then he asked, how many of you married out of your species? <laughs> Jan and I are the only ones that raised our hands. <laughs> I, we did because I'm a night owl by nature. I, I get my second win, typically. As I get older, it's been less. But, you know, 9 or 10 o'clock at night, get my second wind. And, and Jan's a morning dove. And so by 9 o'clock, you know, her eyelids are going down. And she falls asleep of whatever movie we happen to be watching after 9 o'clock. And when the dew is still on the roses, quite frankly, I can be all thorns. You know, but, uh, but whether you're a night owl or a morning dove, most likely that will affect your view of sleep. To me as a night person, sleep often seemed to be a good thing only late in the morning. In one of the churches I served as pastor, the elders warned that we had to finish our board meeting by 10 o'clock at night before the pastor really got rolling and started bringing up all this other stuff that needed to talk about into the late hours. And the older I've gotten, the earlier I go to bed, but I still want to stay in bed in the morning as, as long as I can. I hate the sound of alarm clocks. And, but I don't want to be like the sluggard in Proverbs 6, 9. How long will you lay down, O sluggard? When will you arise from the sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Did you know that's biblical, the folding of the hands to rest? And during the summer months when I was a kid, my mom had a good way to get me up on those summer mornings when we were out of school and those kind of things. She would come in with the Electrolux canister vacuum cleaner and start vacuuming in our bedroom and bumping it up against the, the bed. She wouldn't say anything, but... You know, 9.30 in the morning, that canister vacuum, it sounds like a jet engine going on, and uh, that, it really startles you. But, uh, so sleep yeah, it can either be a blessing or a curse. At the end of a long day, and we've worked hard, and we're tired, and we need the sleep, sleep is a great blessing. By it, the body is restored, the spirit is refreshed. And the 127th Psalm says that the Lord gives to his beloved even in his sleep. And the words even in have been added there because the direct object is sleep. The Lord gives to his beloved sleep. He gives us sleep. It's a gift of God. It's a blessing of God. But sleep can also be a curse. When a person just stays in bed, it's an expression of, of laziness. And, and, and that was the potential spiritual case for the first generation church that Paul was writing in, writing to Rome. They were in danger of sleepwalking through the Christian life. And the Apostle Paul used the metaphor or the concept of sleep as a metaphor to show the spiritual dangers of being unaware of, unconcerned of, about what the Lord is doing. What the Lord is doing in their own life. The idea of sleeping shows a spiritual lethargy and, and laziness that can make a believer act as if he or she has no spiritual life whatsoever. So in our text in his letter to the Romans, Paul is banging the spiritual vacuum cleaner against the bed of the people, the Christians in Rome. And he's telling his readers to get up and get dressed. Now noted sleepers in the Bible are classic for the tragic circumstances that resulted because they're sleeping. You remember that Samson slept a sleep of compromise. He was called to deliver God's people from the Philistines, but he slept as he fraternized with the enemy. Jonah slept the sleep of an easy conscience in the hole of his ship. 
called to preach, preach the peop, to the people at Nineveh, he slept while the, she, so the ship was going in the opposite direction. Three disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane slept the sleep of indifference, called to watch with their Lord for just one hour. They knew not or cared not that he prayed his prayer unto death. Five foolish maidens slept the sleep of unpreparedness, called to join the wedding party. They were left behind with flickering lamps. They had not brought enough oil. So please look once again to Romans chapter 13, verse 11. In the 13th chapter of Romans, so that his readers might forego the tragic consequences of sleeping spiritually, Paul tells them it's time to wake up. Verse 11, do this knowing the time, that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Do this, we could paraphrase this, do this, do what? Love all the more. Do this, love God and love your neighbor all the more, knowing the time. It's time to wake up, the alarm is going off, and if you oversleep or sleepwalk through life, the consequences are going to be tragic. So knowing the time well helps people, helps you love people the way that you should. So what is the time? We saw that this last week. The time is the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And so we live in those overlapping times. The age of, of forgiveness and righteousness and peace and purity and health and light and joy has come. But the old age of guilt and sin and death and sickness and misery, it still remains. We live in the overlap between these two times, between Christ's first coming and his second coming. In Christ, we are forgiven, accepted, and empowered to, to, for holiness and love, but nothing is yet perfect on this earth. We still struggle with sin. We still get sick. We still die. There are still riots in the streets. There are still pandemics. But Paul's emphasis in this text is not on the darkness that is passing away, but his emphasis is on the light that is already dawning. He says in verse 12, The night is almost come, almost gone, the day is near. But don't set your mind on the darkness and how long it has lasted. Set your mind on the truth of the day of Christ's second appearing. The sun rises at hand because of the dawn of Christ's first appearing. It has arrived. The powers of darkness are broken. And Paul says in the second part of verse 11, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. In other words, your freedom from sinning, your perfect health one day, your perfect ability to enjoy Christ in his immediate presence is getting closer every day. And the older we are, it's getting closer, isn't it? So it's time to wake up. So the Apostle Paul first tells us that it's time to wake up. And then he tells us that it's time to change clothes. It's time to get out of your night clothes or get out of your pajamas. And it's time to get dressed for the daytime. So he says in the middle of verse 12, Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So to dress appropriately for the day in which we live, we are to take something off and we are to put on something else. I was thinking about this this last week and thought, have you ever had one of those dreams where you're out and about someplace and you're still in your pajamas? I think everybody has those. You're embarrassingly not dressed for appropriately in some public setting, and apparently it's a very common dream and indicates 
that the dreamer is just drifting in real life, just drifting. He or she is drifting through their typical ordinary day without paying attention to other things around them. They are unaware of where they truly are and what they are doing in life. And they realize they are not dressed for it. Now, I already had this in my notes and I already given some thought, but this last Friday night after I had all this put down, I had a dream where there was two of us, and I don't know who the other person was, but both of us were dressed in a white dress shirt, no tie, and we had gym shorts on. And we were out and about someplace, and I looked at the other guy and noticed that both of us had blue sweatpants under the gym shorts. And I told him, I think we're okay. <laughs> now, that's my dream. You know, so that's how these dreams can play, play with us. These times. You know, for a pastor, it's always the old, same old dream where we're supposed to speak someplace or preach someplace, and we get there, we either don't have our notes or something, or we're not dressed right, and those kind of things. And, you know, this is the same idea that we saw last week where the Apostle Paul cried out to certain believers in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He is not speaking to the unsaved. Here he's talking to the, to the, he's not speaking to the unsaved who are spiritually dead, but he's speaking to genuine believers in Ephesus who are sleepwalking through this world. They're living their Christian life as if they're in their pajamas, as if they're sleepwalking. And they need to put, take something off and put something else on. And Paul tells us right here in Romans 13 that we are to lay aside the deeds of darkness and get dressed in the armor of light. First of all, we lay aside the deeds of darkness. Literally, it says we're to cast them off, throw them off. It's not the idea that you put them away carefully someplace for later use. This is just throw them away, basically. Take off what you're wearing and, and throw it away. And you've probably had that time where you've walked in the dark. Maybe it was in the middle of the night and you got up to get something in the kitchen and you didn't want to be startled awake. You know, you turn the light on, it, it's dark, and all of a sudden, you know, it's just, you don't want to be that awake. So you just kind of want to, you know, go to the kitchen and get something or get a drink of water and not really wake up because then it's going to be harder to go back to sleep and those kind of things. And then all of a sudden, you crunch that toe against something that you didn't know that was there. Ouch. You know, the Bible describes the sinful world in which we live as darkness. Satan and his evil forces are described as the world forces of darkness. His territory is the domain of darkness. Unbelievers are darkened in their understanding because the God of this world has blinded them. Jesus said, men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. The Lord Jesus is the light of the world. And if we follow him, we will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In contrasting believers with unbelievers, Paul rhetorically asks, what fellowship has light with darkness? And then Peter draws the contrast by saying that God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now there's a tragic irony here, and it's crucial to keep this in mind, because the world always presents itself as being enlightened, as being bright, as being progressive where it portrays the Christians always as what? Being in the dark. You believe in moral absolutes? You're from the dark ages. You know, these days you hear a lot of stuff. We used to hear it in the 20th century. This is the 20th century. Man's getting better and better. Remember the war to end all wars? World War I. Then we had World War II and all those wars. 
The war to end all wars was a theological statement because Christians really thought the world was getting better and better and that Jesus would return when it got good enough for him to return. That was a, a very typical belief at that time, that mankind's just getting better and better. And now that we finish the 20th century, now we hear, well, this is the 20th century, 21st century, and we don't have riots anymore, and we don't have Iran and other bad actors that do that anymore. And I'm going, you know, no, what are you thinking? You know, they think that if you have moral absolutes that you live in the dark ages. The, the world says that every edu educated person knows that the moral standards vary from culture to culture and from place to place and however you feel and it's ignorant and arrogant to claim that your culture's standards are the right ones. How dare you Christians push off those, those ancient things, ancient Hebrew texts and stuff on us. And the world can't believe that any thinking person would believe in judgment or, or hell. How could a God of love judge good people who, who try to do their best? But the Bible says that's just the opposite. The world is in utter darkness concerning God. It does not know him as he has revealed himself in his word, in his living word, Jesus Christ, and in his written word. The word is also dark concerning man. It assumes that men are basically good, whereas the Bible tells us there is none righteous, not even one. The world is dark concerning our purposes for living. It thinks that the goal in life is to collect all the money and all the stuff that you can so, so that you'll be happy. You know, and that's the way to happiness. And Jesus says that even when one has an abundance, life does not consist in his possessions. He says that the person who stores up treasures on earth but is not rich towards God is a fool. The Greek word there is moros. He's a moron. The world is also dark concerning death and eternity. It thinks that death will usher us somehow into a peaceful place and that almost all people will go there. And all these worldly notions are not in keeping with who we are in Christ. It's like adopting their standards. It's like dressing as a beggar when we have the riches of Christ. And so in verse 13 of Romans chapter 13, Paul spells out three couplets here of sinful behavior. He groups two together in three, three couplets. These are the deeds of darkness that we are to cast off. Verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Now, Paul does not list all the possible deeds of darkness here, but he gives us a representative list of three couplets of the, the kinds of things that people do in the darkness. And as believers, we must be on guard so that we're not enticed by these sins. He starts with carousing and drunkenness. And the Greek word translated carousing was used generally of feast and drinking parties that are protracted till late at night and indulge in revelry. Now, anyone who spent much time on a secular college campus knows exactly what these are. You know, the goal I heard from a lot of my friends at college is, well, I'm just here to party hardy, and that's what I'm going to do. And the next day you hear people brag about how wasted they got. And what even some of their sexual exploits were when they were, were drunk. And how cool it was. At least cool was the word they used in my day. I don't know what they would use today to describe it. And many first century believers came out of backgrounds where according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, they carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable Idolatries. And Galatians 5.21 says that drunkenness and carousing, 
These deeds of the flesh are not appropriate for believers, obviously. And then second, the deeds of darkness consist of what Paul calls sexual promiscuity and sensuality. The first word translated sexual promiscuity has to do with sexual intercourse outside of marriage. And the second word translated sensuality means licentiousness and unrestrained lust. And again, these are deeds of the flesh that are characteristic of unbelievers, not believers. Turn over to Paul's letter to the Ephesians for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4, verse, verse 17. Because this is speaking of, of the background and the life before Christ of, of so many people that lived in that day and in Ephesus as well. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, so I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles. And there he's talking about the Gentiles, the people who don't know Christ, also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have, having become callous, had given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greed. That, that word callous, They're just not impacted by what this really means and the life that they're really living. And then third, the deeds of darkness consist of strife and jealousy. These are relational sins. You know, we have strife between one another when we're jealous of of somebody else. And and sometimes we shrug these off as being no big deal because, oh, this isn't sexuality and promiscuity and and all these other kinds of things. You know, that's not as big a deal, is it? But they are directly opposed to the second greatest commandment, which is to what? Love others. We are to love others as ourselves. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Leon Morris, in his commentary on Romans, says the deeds of darkness of strife and jealousy, he says, both indicate a determination to have one's own way, a self-willed readiness to quarrel. And then talking about all six of the uh, vices we talked about, he says all six of these vices stem from self-will. They are all the outreach of determined selfishness that seeks only one's pleasure. And quoting another commentary, Morris writes, all these practices constitute a failure in love, which works no harm to a neighbor. So having told us what to cast off, Paul tells us, what to put on in Romans chapter 13, in verse 12 again. He says, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, you would have expected here that Paul would have said, Take off the clothes of the deeds of darkness and put on the deeds of light. You think that would make sense, because if I was taking a poetry class or an English class and I took two things that weren't compatible and put them together, they'd say, well, that's bad writing. Well, this is not bad writing, but it's truthful writing. It would make more sense to put on the deeds of light, but then, of course, then we're saying, okay, it's by my works that, you know, and we get into all that work salvation and kind of stuff. But what he says is, put on the armor of light. Clothe yourself with armor. And this is everything that you think armor is. You know, think of the, the Roman soldier with the helmet and the breastplate and the shield and, 
and uh, the weapons that go with his armor. Or you think of the, the Middle Ages knight with the, the, the metal armor that they wore and the chain mail. Can you imagine how heavy that must have been? You know, that it had iron woven together and chains and interlocking chains. Then they put that on. Now I've got to go out and fight. And, you know, it's no wonder that when Saul wanted to put his armor on David, remember that, when David was going to face Goliath, and Saul said, here, you can have my armor. You know, and Saul was a head higher than every other man, and he puts the, the armor on David, and David basically tactfully said, I cannot go with these. <laughs> you, know, you know, it must have really looked silly. But, so that's what we're talking about. But we are talking about real armor here. The whole assumption here, here is that those of you who belong to Christ are children of the day. You've already passed from darkness to light. You've already been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. You're already new creatures in Christ. You're already children of God. What remains for you is to dress like it, to live like it, and since it speaks of armor, to fight like it. Go to battle like it. The clothes, the fight, do not make you the child of the light. Any more, I hope my grandsons don't hear this one, any more than wearing a Batman uh, costume will make you actually make you Batman or Spider-Man or, or whatever it is. And I think they kind of believe that, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, dress like you are a child of light because that will show that you are a child of light. When you dress that way, if they knew the right words, they'd say, hey, boy, he's wearing the armor of light. Now, the world won't know that or understand that, but, but we do. So we dress and live and fight like we're people of the day. So listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, about putting on the clothes of a believer. He says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You're already God's chosen ones. You're already God's holy ones, God's loved ones. Now he says, put on the character that reflects your new identity. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Another place in the New Testament where Paul speaks of putting on Christ, he describes it as something we've already done. In Galatians 3.27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You have closed yourself with Christ. Now, he's not talking about water baptism specifically here. He's talking about uh, spirit baptism or being immersed into Christ. And that's the picture that uh, water baptism gives to us. Water baptism is symbolic of what happened the moment you received Jesus Christ. You were baptized, immersed into Christ. And now you're wearing Christ. It's symbolic of being immersed in Christ. When you're baptized into Christ at your conversion, you put on Christ once for all. Which means that the command to put on Christ in Romans 13, 14 is a call to become what you are. You're a Christ wearer. Wear Christ. So keeping in mind that putting on the armor of light or putting on Christ in verses 12 and 14, they're not instructions to become a Christian all over again. Paul is calling us to be what we are in Christ. We're children of the light. We're children of the day. Dress like it, live like it, fight like it. So what then is the armor of light in verse 12? And how does putting this armor on relate to putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, verses 7 and 8. We spent some time in the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians last week because this is a parallel passage to what Paul is saying here in Romans 13. Paul uses the same language to address the same issues. And Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 7, For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, since we are of the day, let us be sober. Let us be sober. Now Paul goes on here to tell us what the armor of light is. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Very similar to putting on the full armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, but with a couple of little differences here. Paul mentions two pieces of personal armor that are the armor of light. It is the breastplate and the helmet. And he defines what he means by each. By the breastplate, he says, put on faith and love, and the helmet put on hope, put on the hope of salvation. So the armor of light is faith, hope, and love. Doesn't that make sense? And the greatest of these is, is love. But that's what we are to put on. So as we come back to Romans chapter 13, verse 12, the meaning now becomes, So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That is, let us put on faith, hope, and love. Now think of it this way. What does the helmet protect? What does the helmet protect? The head, the brain, the mind, uh, we would say. It protects our, our thinking. The world, the flesh, and the devil has one goal primarily, and if you remember this, you kind of get everything else, has one goal primarily to change your thinking. To change your thinking. That's what that people know whether they're good or bad people or whoever they are, they know if they can get people to think wrongly, they got them. You know, to protect your, you know, do you think our brain needs to be protecting, protected? Our thinking, our mind, with the internet, with pornography, with every ad, every ad you see on TV has one thing in mind, to change your thinking, to make you think, you need this, you need that, we sell that, we're going to provide that, to make you dissatisfied. You start thinking, oh, my life's just not any good because I don't have, I don't have that. So, so it's to protect the mind. What does the breastplate protect? Your vital organs, right? And what is the most vital organ? Your heart. And what is the heart? It's the place of your emotions and, and those kind of things. Everywhere you turn in this world, there's a weapon of darkness from either the world, our own flesh, or the devil that's aimed at your chest and aimed at your head. Because if the devil can get your emotions, he's got the rest of you. If he can control your thinking, he's got the rest of you. And everywhere you turn, the flaming missiles of the evil one are targeting your emotions, your will, your reason, your intellect, and your thinking. I've probably mentioned this before. One of my far favorite Far Side cartoons ever was two deer were standing up in a field, and one of them had a target on his chest. And the other one said, bummer of a birthmark, hey, Hal. <laughs> you know, that's what we've got. We've got a target on our chest. 
And, and we've got, you know, that laser, that, that red thing we see on TV where they're, they're laser sighting in, you know, that's, you know, you know, and it's like those sometimes you see them circling as five or six or targeting, you know, that's, that's the way we are. The enemy wants to mess with the way we think. He wants to mess with our emotions. He wants to mess with our will so we will make wrong choices. We must wake up to the battle that we are in, and we must put on the armor of light. And so how do we do that? How do we put on faith, hope, and love? Well, we ask, faith in what? Faith in what? What is the object of our faith? Hope in what? What is the source of our hope? And love for what? Verse 12 of Romans chapter 13 says, put on the armor of light. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. Get in the right book here. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Putting on the armor of light is the same as putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. The exact same thing. Putting on the full armor of God is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just more extended to the gospel of the shoes of peace and some of the other pieces of the armor. So we can take verse 14 to mean, put on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And put on love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how to get dressed. And since he could say it so much better than I could, I'm going to quote how John Piper explains this. And I wish I could do it with the enthusiasm that he does, you know, and the pointing. If you've ever seen him on video and those kind of things, he's... He's almost more fun to watch than he is to listen to, and that's pretty good stuff. He says, putting on Christ each day doesn't mean wearing him as an imposition or nuisance or a burden. It means wearing him as a protection that is trusting him and wearing him as the supplier of all your future needs. That is hoping in him and wearing him as your supreme treasure that is loving him. Put on Jesus Christ means putting him on as the parachute for your skydiving behind enemy lines. It means put him on as the high-impact, protective, anti-explosive suit when you disarm the bombs of the devil. Isn't that a great picture? It means put him on as the asbestos, fireproof suit when you rescue sinners from the flames of hell. It means put him on as a bulletproof vest when you confront the pistols of sin and unbelief. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ means put him on as a badge that admits you to all the resources of heaven that you will need to do his will. It means put him on as the best intercom system that ever was so, so there can be constant communication with the one whom you love above all others and who is himself everything you need. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ means trust him, hope in him, cherish him for all things. So the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Take off the pajamas of sin and put on the armor of light. The Christian life is not just waking, it's a war. The armor of light is faith and hope and love. So put on faith in Jesus and hope in Jesus and love for Jesus. That's what it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 14, Paul gives us a practical application for this. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Here the order is reversed. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and then we put off sin in a sense. That's because once you get dressed for battle and you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
you start taking hits right away, right? You know, and how are you going to handle those hits? How do we put off sin when it's just a constant barrage against us? And he says, make no provision for the flesh. The word translated provision here has the basic meaning of forethought. We get the same word providence from it, pro-video, literally in the Greek. It means planning ahead, thinking ahead. And in some instances, in the case of God, seeing what's up, up ahead. And, you know, so it has the idea of forethought, of thinking, what goes through our mind. And more often than not, the sins that we commit and develop come from the wrong ideas and lustful desires that we have allowed to linger in our thinking, right? Whether it's gossip or whether it's a sexual sin, you know, we, we get that fleeting thought in our mind. And remember, the thought is not the sin. Just because the temptation is not the sin. The sin is when we let our mind, let it rattle around up there in that empty space where it finds a place to get a home <laughs> because nothing else is going on there. And so then we start going over those thoughts over and over and over again, don't we? augmenting them, developing them, sometimes even fantasizing about them. And when we make provision for the flesh, it brings it to fruition. That's what James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 say. We see how that works in James chapter 1, the 14th verse. He says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, in other words, that's where you've milled it around in your mind and it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. Then we sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do you know sin always brings death? Even the sin that we do now as believers? The wages of sin is always death because what that sin does, it damages us. Sin is destructive. It damages our own soul. It damages other people that we have sinned against. It always brings death. And, and so that's why we need to repent of it and confess it to God and, and to, to ask him for his forgiveness. And he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all forgiveness and or, uh, cleanse us from all unrighteousness and, and to forgive us. But it works pretty much the same way with all sin. We have a fleeting thought and how we might cheat just a little. You know, we might be able to get away with that. Nobody's going to notice in those kind of things. And so we start thinking about it. And, you know, the thought's not sin. But when we dwell on that, it keeps coming back to our minds. And we start thinking, how, wow, I could actually carry it out this way. And we dwell on it and develop it until it gives birth to sin. It works the same way with sexual sin. We see an ad on TV or we see something on the Internet and those kind of things, and we think, oh, okay, and then pretty soon our mind is dwelling on it. It gives birth to sin. When we've been hurt by somebody else and we start dwelling on it, maybe we start thinking about how we can get them back or maybe some bad thing will happen to them I didn't have anything to do with. You know how that goes. And, you know, we start thinking of that and it gives birth to sin. Do you know how to deal with all of this? Paul says, make no provision of the flesh. In other words, kill the thought the moment that you have it. Put it to death. And if that means going before the Lord in prayer or getting in the word and finding a scripture passage that has to do with that. In other words, kill these thoughts and use God's word and use God prayer and use prayer to put it to death immediately. 
Don't let these thoughts even enter your mind because they all are intended to awaken sinful desires. And how do you put these kind of thoughts out of your mind? You think of Christ. You think of Jesus Christ. You know, if Jesus was standing right next to me, would I do that? <laughs> well, guess what? <laughs> you know, I've always thought as a Christian, I dare not sin as a Christian because the Holy Spirit's always going to bring it to light. I'll get caught every time. <laughs> you, know, sorry. you know, that's a good way to look at it, you know. And uh, you think of Christ and you call to mind the words of God. This is where you go to Scripture. You call to mind the words of God that awaken more faith in Jesus. And you call to mind the promises of God that awaken the hope in Jesus. You know, I, I, I'm merely in a dark place and I, I, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And we start thinking about it in our own minds. What can I do to do this? To get out, get out from under this? That's the time to go to Jesus, right? That's the time to open God's word and see what he has to say. And the one I like, it's calling to mind the beauty of Jesus that awakens more love to Jesus. When we see his, his beauty. And I think there's a practical way to do this too. For, for many years, and I, I get out of the habit once in a while, and then when the Lord reminds me, I, I go back to it. And, and Jan reminded me of this just this last week. She said, we need to be putting on the full armor of God every morning. We did it one morning. <laughs> yeah, 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 you knew how that goes. And Jan shaking her head. But there was times when I would, I would, before my feet would hit the floor in the morning, and they used to hit the floor a lot faster than they do now. Now I have to slowly get up, sit on the edge of the bed, and those kind of things. But, but what a time to put on the full armor of God and, and to do it. Ephesians chapter 6 says we do it by how? By prayer. By prayer. By prayer we put on the armor of God. Of God, And there was a time, me not being a morning person, this, this was tough, but uh, I would call one of our sons in, in the Midwest at, at college, and uh, I would call him, and we would pray and put on the full armor of God together. You know how hard that is for a night owl to, you know, it's an hour earlier in the Midwest, and to call him and make sure he's awake and those kind of things, but it was, it was something that was necessary for both of us to do every day. Make, make that a habit of life. And, and so in our closing prayer this morning, we're, we're going to put on the armor of light. Let, let's do that in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our breastplate. Father, that you protect our heart, our emotions, our vital organs. Father, we put on faith. We put on love this way. Father, I thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. I thank you that there's nothing I can do, no kind of works that I can do to make you love me more. Father, I thank you for the pressure that that takes off of me today, that you love me with all the love of Christ. And Father, I thank you that there's Nothing that I can do to make you love me less. Father, I thank you. So I put on your love. I'm going to walk in your love today. I'm not going to try to impress you or impress others with my works or what I do. But Father, I know that you have given me certain things to do graciously that I will walk in them. 
And Father, I put on faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that it's not, again, anything that I do that gets me saved, Father. But it is all that Jesus did. And Father, I know that my faith is going to be challenged. All of our faith is going to be challenged this day, Lord, every day, Father. And I pray that when I, when I doubt, you will bring to mind those precious promises that you have given us, Lord. That you will never leave us nor forsake us. That nothing can take us out of your hand. Not riots or pandemics. Not sickness or illness. Father, and like the man who said, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Father, I thank you that you are faithful even when I don't have the faith that I need. And Father, we put on hope. We look at this world and we see that there is no hope in the world. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Even when we face deep loss and the loss of loved ones, Father, we thank you for the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that, Lord. As we walk in this world, help us to walk in hope of you and hope of our salvation. And Father, as people of the day, we look forward to the blessed hope, which is the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us live in that hope and anticipation that we may not even leave this room before the Lord Jesus comes to take us to himself. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.